0: Well, um, so this talk um, will be on cases of prior treatment failure. And when we're talking treatment failure, we're talking DAA failure because in the uh, previous days, we'd have talks that would talk about interferon failures. But for several reasons, those don't really exist anymore. One is that many of those patients were already connected to treaters, and so they've been treated with these new agents, and they're cured. Uh, Secondly, you pretty much overcome interferon-based treatment uh, failure with these new agents. So, like the differences in terms of what you prescribe, patients, um, it no longer changes that fact. So we don't think about. Uh, while there are sections, if you go to the guidelines on interferon-experienced patients, and you can go and find out what you're going to give, it's going to be very similar to what you give another patient. So, and it'll be very similar to what you just heard from Kristin. Um, the other thing I'll state is. Um, this will obviously be a fraction of patients. If we're able to cure 95 plus percent of patients, 97, 98 percent, you know, this will be a very small number. So there could be, you could just say, well, if someone fails treatment, I'm just calling Kenna, or, you know, (laughs) sending them to someone who's dealt with this before, because that's going to be a very small subset. And uh, you could, um, you know, relax during this talk too much, but I still want you to get some concepts from it. The other thing I'll apologize for is that the previous slide set um, obviously didn't come through well here. It will be definitely fixed. It's just an issue of combining PowerPoint slides, so when you are able to download these talks after the conference, which you will be able to, you'll get the proper slide set. And this slide set has a few formatting issues, but not as bad as the last one. So we'll discuss uh, options for treatment experience patients and the relevance, again, of resistance-associated substitutions. And I used a couple minutes in my previous talk, so I don't have to introduce it as much here, just to plant the seeds, and because it's also a little bit relevant to naive therapy, but just a little bit. Is so um, when you think about DAA regimen failures or relapses after treatment, you can think about, like, what happened during the previous treatment and... That helps define what you'll do next. And so one very important thing is the class of agents. You heard about the three different classes. And so if they were exposed to protease inhibitors before, if they were exposed to um, NS5A inhibitors before, it matters. Which one? Because then the resistance that you'll see afterwards may be different. Did they have ribavirin? Did they get sufficient duration? That's an issue. The patient themselves, is there something um, that... Maybe the cirrhosis wasn't identified. Maybe there was a um, problem with the Fibrosure test, and it underreported. Remember that middle ground, maybe that F2 could have been an F3 plus or an F4 maybe, and because it was inaccurate, you undertreated them because they only got eight weeks of the Lidibus erosophagus. So there, there's reasons to think about now. Or you may be seeing them three years later, and you just heard from Ken in a co-infected patient three years later, they can then have advances in their liver staging and so another thing to think about have they developed or um, uh, kidney disease in the meantime Um, is there a bmi difference adherence during the previous um, uh, uh, treatment course was it optimized was it interrupted Uh, lots of reasons why it may not have worked quite as well drug interactions were there things they didn't tell you about so uh, this is one of the controversies in our field if they're not coming back every month anymore um, will you hear about the medications that other people prescribe that may have interfered with um, yours? And so, uh, and resistance, which we'll talk about in detail. So those are questions that you can ask when you're faced with, with a patient who, uh, again, hopefully not that unlucky patient when you're first that, that it doesn't work in. Um, but um, So the case, as mentioned, will be uh, introduced a little bit about hiv hep C co-infection. HIV-suppressed African-American gentleman uh, Good CD4 count, um, uh, and on this um, regimen, uh, of, fixed dose regimen of um, uh, TDF FTC rilpivirine, uh, his platelet count is 135. So already, as you just learned from Ken, what are you thinking? Now the confounder here is that he also has HIV. So 135 doesn't really trigger with us. A little bit of splenomegaly doesn't really trigger in an HIV patient that you'd be thinking strongly about advanced liver disease. But already we've also introduced HIV as a cofactor, but he's 69 years old. I mean, however long he's had HCV, unless it's super recent, he could have, um, uh, you know, a long-standing infection with HIV, and you're really thinking this patient may have issues. Now, it turns out that the age of acquisition of hep C also matters in terms of fibrosis progression um, when you look at back at studies. A younger liver is very much able to tolerate a U infection well, which is why these young patients all have F0 pretty much, these under 25-year-olds. Whereas if you get it in your age 40 or, or 50, and I, we just had someone seroconvert at age 65 who just got involved in IV drugs. He'd used coke and, and inhaled for years, but just recently get, became involved in it. And so 64, <coughs> that's not the same liver as when you're 20. And you'd know this if you drank alcohol all your life. There's a difference. So, um, so you can look at cirrhosis by ultrasound. So you're already thinking things. However, no evidence of varices. It's albumin, 3.6, a little borderline. Uh, Creatinine, though, is 1.1. I mean, he's 69, so you've got to calculate that into effect. But overall, when you look at these parameters, they're not terrible for decompensation. And so he got no pr- He got 12 weeks of lopinavir/ritonavir, which is pretty much appropriate for a couple years ago. Um, the Hepsi RNA is target detected at week 4, but not quantifiable. So it does say detected. Does that matter? Reports good adherence, takes also his HIV meds pretty well, and he is suppressed. And he claims to have only missed two doses over 84 pills. That's like the 90th percentile, by the way, of most many patients we're treating these days. And then um, Hepsi C um, uh, RNA, unfortunately, is positive at week four post-treatment. And so he was eating some more tomatoes during the last two months of treatment and was taking some Tums at night, apart from his medications. And so drug interactions, one would think about. He is, happens to be on a real piverine based regimen. And I'm not meaning for you to learn every cell of this table. But this is available on the website. It, this is actually the downloadable version of the slide, so you can quickly use it for your own talks. But um, you'll notice some patterns, like there's, some, um, there's more red, which is kind of a, a no-go, and yellow caution with the protease inhibitors, particularly ritonavir-boosted uh, uh, agents. Um, and then um, uh, so there's cobacistat here, which also has some issues. You'll notice that rilpivirine, as well, well as raltegravir, as well as dolutegravir the integrase inhibitors, which um, if you're not familiar with HIV, I know many of you are, but those are like the clean ones, right, for drug interactions. Um, And so um, while there are no data for some, there's some predictions over whether or not they should be, and Bictegravir is on that. And then now we have a new one, which is not yet on this table, Deraverine, which um, should not have uh, significant interactions. So, you know, we can look a little bit more at the details of um, why uh, these are drug interactions. the substrates of the cytochrome um, uh, system, the OATP. There are people in this room who know what that stands for, and I don't. And I don't. So the, the pharmacists here. So um, uh, anyways, uh, this is how you do HIV-Hep-C these days, and because there's such an emphasis on placing patients already on integrase inhibitors, I would say this seems to come up not that often anymore. Like, um, But uh, there are the rare, highly resistant HIV cases who are on some of these uh, strange or a cobacist or some other agent and then you call Kina and then,
1: I call and then you call <laughs> the <laughs> pharmacist.
0: So um, and it really um, uh, uh, Speaks to our, our uh, need for a relationship with um, a good pharmacist All right, so you have this patient. He just failed the dip is What resistance testing would you ask for? Do you want the NS3 testing? Do you want the NS5A NS5B? Both NS3 and NS5A, I don't give you more options than that, or none. We have zero responses thus far. You're kind of absorbing resistance testing. I've never sent this test. I don't know how to order it in Epic, so I'm not going to bother. So, Do you guys have Epic? Or? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Yeah. That's why we're suffering. Yeah, you're like, do I even know how to find this? I didn't put call Kenna here. <laughs> we're up to eight. I can't hear that one. Big Bang. Oh, Big Bang Theory. I don't, I've only seen that twice on a plane. It's good. Sheldon, young Sheldon. I know some TV. do you have a
1: TV at
0: home? I do have a TV at home. All right, so many of you, this is such an ID audience. You want all the information, right? (laughs) There are many ID, right? Am I wrong? More is better. More is better. So we'll go through, by the end, um, uh, it, 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 it kind of depends, but the, the answer could be none, which is kind of shocking, right? It's very anti the way I've been trained. All right. So I did send it because I'm an IV doctor, but um, against guidelines, and there are mutations, and this is the, one of the few um, problems with the formatting, but you see a Q30R in the NS5A, and you look in the protease, and there is this I37B, which doesn't seem to confer anything but you're not these drugs don't even seem that familiar so this this is what we were using at the time when uh this patient so So these results are kind of annoying what are they saying they're saying resistance probable possible i mean it's not telling you like when you're treating with antibiotics in the hospital like resistance do not use right i mean there's a and that's a big difference in how we do the test as we'll go through But it is detecting this mutation, which, you know, if you look, does confer in vitro issues with uh, every one of the NS5A inhibitors, which are part, by the way, of every regimen that we just talked about, right? There's some that don't have a protease, there's some that don't have a polymerase, but NS5A, part of everything. So let's talk about these resistance associated substitutions. The Q30R is just one example. Um, First of all, that certain RASs will confer various amounts of fitness. So if I... Mutate my arm and I'm trying to run a race. Yeah, I'm still kind of fit to do that I might not have the same aerodynamics, but if I mutate in my knee, that's a problem, right? So there's that's at least one way I think about fitness very simply and so um, and some Resistance-associated mutations are present at baseline now. I didn't test at baseline because I wasn't told to but um, They may be there even the absence of drug exposure. is just out there. Okay, it just some, and some are, and those are the more fit ones, if you think about it, because they're competing with the wild-type virus. Um, and so, rasses that are selected during treatment tend to be more serious, as you'll see. They tend to be higher in magnitude and higher in frequency, et cetera. And um, the longer they're on treatment, the more likely they are, they are to have rasses at the time of treatment failure. This is something, uh, just a concept of how much pressure has been applied to that virus. And so by the end of 8 to 12 weeks of a therapy, You've like applied a lot of pressure on the virus. Whatever's left is like resistance. Whereas if you only get two to three weeks, and we don't have a lot of patients in the clinical trials who have been characterized this way. But there may not be enough pressure to really have produce it. and the reason why they realize they just didn't get it long enough. Slight like difference. RASs may impact treatment responses in select situations, <coughs> which is a very vague sentence, but is basically correct, that it really may impact things. But um, may or may not is a good way to put it. The main point is resistance is not futile. You can overcome it by uses of different agents, um, later generation agents with higher barriers to resistance, or by longer duration addition of ribovirin. And so the uh, correct answer to the question is for newly approved regimens, detection of RASs are actually not necessary, as so I'll try to show you. But what are the resistance assays? So the traditional approach is kind of a population-based sequencing. I'll show you a picture of that in a little bit. But basically, it's skimming off the top of all the, you know, millions of potential viruses that are in a patient. Uh, the neurations are ultra deep. I can't go deep today because, yeah, I was yelling a lot last night watching the baseball game. But the um, available are um, a variety of tests you could send, and they do use this next-generation type sequencing. But what they do is they don't report to you every little, tiny, little mutation that's out there. So they go deep. They have the data. They can see, oh, there's that Q30R, but it's only one in 1,000. I'm not going to tell the clinician that. I'm going to tell them that it was uh, anything that's 10% or higher. Um, And so some are sequence-based. The other thing is that it's really for genotypes 1 and 3 that you can order these tests in Epic. I'm not aware that you can send these for other things. You can send it to some fancy um, academic lab to get resistance. The other thing is that genotype 1A assays are subtype specific. And really, if you're ever going to send this, pretty much don't send it in a 1B patient. Usually not relevant. Whereas 1A, it is more relevant. That's one slight slight subtle difference between 1A and 1B virus. But um, the differences in the barriers by drug class, I already showed you this. Again, uh, uh, variable for protease inhibitors, extremely high for NS5B, and I'll show you pictures later that help demonstrate that. And variable for NS5A, and it really depends on how recent the drug has been developed, because these next-generation ones are better. And so um, and it has to do some, somewhat with the number of abilities to mutate around it, the compensatory mutations that are necessary as well. So you can think about it like you apply pressure, such as with a protease inhibitor, and then comes out a fit mutant strain. Or you can think about it that there's pressure, and maybe there's a mutation, again, going from this blue color to another color, but that is less fit, and I'll show you this. All right, so compared to selected RASs, baseline RASs are likely to be just more single, meaning just one in that sort of long strain. There's, um, there's variable prevalence, meaning there's, um, you know, you heard 10 to 15%. Again, it depends a little bit on definition and cutoffs, sort of what number to use, because really, if you look, everyone has resistance. It's just a matter of how frequent and how much. And it's just there, right? It's just kind of there, because it's kind of baseline. It's just they have that virus. Whereas, once selected, it's different, because then you've, A, usually expose the patient ch- uh, to multiple different classes. So if you had a protease inhibitor and an NS5A inhibitor, it could have dual-class resistance afterwards. Um, for instance, higher prevalence within the population. So we're not talking about, like, a 15%, sort of barely detected, I should say, above the threshold of detection type of thing. They are the predominant prevalence, usually. Now, it depends a little bit on timing, which I'll show you in a moment. Also, because they did not respond to the initial therapy, they could have that sort of multiplicity of other difficult-to-treat characteristics I was telling you about earlier, the cirrhosis, the higher BMI. You know, if you add six of those, then you start to see little decrements in that sort of 95, when you start at 95% baseline. It's hard with 99%, because even there, they're so rare. It's hard to but in any event, they are more likely, if you meet a Lodipus or Cifosavir failure, they may be more likely to have that. Um, And so this concept of fitness, I'll just show you sofosivir. So these RASs are rare, super low frequency at baseline, almost uh, hard to detect, and then rarely detected and disappear quickly. So this is just a famous case of someone who did develop the resistance in in the trial. And you see it's like 99% this 282 mutation. um, um, It's 99% S at baseline. It turns into a T, all right? S to T, Uh, just the, the amino acid. And look what happens. It quickly goes to less than 1%. It's like, it's like an effervescent, <laughs> transient type of thing. Whereas, you look at an NS3, and this is going back to the first generation protease inhibitors, which frequently had this uh, R155K. But we were able, in that era, to follow people for many months. And you can see that some of them um, uh, were able to persist for a while. Um, whereas others did not. And 1Bs kind of reverted back to wild type more quickly. And so, um, uh, you know, timing matters a lot because these were a variable fitness and were eventually also overcome with wild type, just not as fast as that highly unfit Cifosovir mutation. So there's really no reason to send a Cifosovir mutation ever, right? I mean, it just goes away really quickly. Um, You might be there under the surface, but there's at least on the clinical level, not that important. NS5A is kind of where we think a lot of the action is and, and may be important. Uh, before treatment, again, 16% um, uh, had some sort of um, uh, resistance mutation. And then uh, afterwards, these unfortunately become 99% and have higher fitness. And so, again, a few formatting issues, a little bit better than the first thought. But after 48 weeks, this thing is around and it's sticking around. And that's kind of So, NS5A is the one that sticks, um, or certain mutations, I should say, not all of them. All right, and so this is just a great example of a uh, person with dual resistance and what happens post-follow-up. You just see, again, um, the ns 3 RAVs kind of going away, but the persistence of NS5. And it's the same patient, so it's like a good controlled experiment showing you how uh, certain proteins uh, act. All right, so you have this patient with the lodiposivir experience and documented NS5A resistance. So let's just go through some options. Soft bell plus Ribavirin times 24 weeks soft but plus prod plus Ribavirin for 12 weeks you're like what's prod we didn't really talk about it it's not uh, I it did mention know. it but we're not really using it but plus pretasvi times 16 weeks soft bell box um, times 12 weeks soft bell box plus Ribavirin for 12 weeks Let's see no music this time <laughs> come on. Called to the 80s. Anyone know? Chip? Yeah. No, chips? No. No, it's not Back to the Future. 18? 18. 18. I pity the fool. All right. Soft gel box ends whole weeks. Great. All right. So you remember genotype one? I already told you not to do that. So. paying attention. Um And then, so what is soft gel box? Well, that's one thing. So before the newest two regimens that we're now using for salvage, you know, there's some crazy stuff going on. This patient has NS5A resistance, so why not give like sofosivir plus semeprivir, rabivir in times 24 weeks, he has cirrhosis too, so you know, that's kind of what we did. That's that sort of prod plus sofosivir type of regimen. Here's like another fun regimen. Here's like three classes, cemeprovir, declatosvir, Um, If you remember the pricing of all of that. Right? Seriously. Like, what was that? $84,000, 60 something thousand? Yeah, the kitchen sink approach. This is an actual kitchen sink available on Amazon. How much do you think this, I don't know, gold, brass-plated kitchen sink costs? Any ha- guesses? Less than
1: that regimen.
0: Less than that regimen. But how much do you think? 2500 2, is well, 19000 This is the most expensive kitchen sink I can find on Amazon. I'm sure you can find more expensive <laughs> kitchen sinks. Um, so, again, what you're trying to do with these newer generation, um, particularly since belpatasferes is part of the newer one, but then you're adding another agent. Now you're hearing about this Vox agent coming in, so we're hitting it hard at the, at the protease level. And then the has really got nice characteristics because it can overcome several of these previous resistance occasions. And so this GP um, for retreatment of NS5A failures um, uh, did pretty well. So these are patients, um, obviously, with prior PI exposure. You're able to uh, overcome that with this uh, glucaparavir, with this high barrier to resistance and whatnot. You know, there are some signals that if you have dual issues, um, particularly with 12 weeks, maybe that's an issue. Um, But then um, if you look at the retreatment in the Magellan 1 study, and then uh, isolate on the, again, the SBR by key resistance mutations. You know, if you have none, that's good and whatnot. But you're basically able to overcome this with 12 or 16 weeks. And so now we're moving often to 16 weeks for these patients for retreatment. That's kind of, you're overcoming it just by going further, if that makes sense, than what I showed you on the previous slide. So um, you'll see this on the retreatment that you just extended. We didn't show it really any safety slides thus far because the safety profiles are really, really safe. What's the one condition that you need to avoid this Previer? Decompensated. 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 great. You guys are ready. Ready to treat. Uh, soft velvox, or from the Polaris study. Um, so another option, because you're attacking these resistant virus, remember it's like resistance at one point, one mutation, but you're able to hit it with Sifosivir, right, which has... Almost no resistance, even if they saw it before. And then you have uh, Vox, a new agent with a high barrier to resistance in the protease class. You're hitting it on three levels. And again, very nice rates. Cirrhosis, you see a slight decrement, but um, overall doing quite well. And then, um, you know, based on RASs, even with some people with some evidence of dual. Now, you know, when you dig into the details, maybe there's like one mutation with a certain mutation where you get into slightly lower, but you're still at really high levels of response. So the point, I guess, is does testing of NS3 or NS5, in this case, really change your management if you have access to these agents? And so that's where you see these sort of agents, the soft bell box for 12 weeks. This is, again, for our patient um, uh, with or without cirrhosis here, glucapevirate plus peperintestero for 16 weeks. And the only reason this is yellow, I think, based on the guidelines, would likely be that it's 16 weeks versus 12. Then again, there could be some drug interaction issue or something that guides you to one or the other. The next case, uh, I'm thinking about sort of breezing through just because honestly, this is like, what, 3% of the patients you'll be treating. You may have a backup person to help you make decisions beyond this, but really even these decisions have simplified. So the genotype 3 patient, for instance, that, that I would show you in a little bit more detail, is also cirrhotic. You know, GENO3, there were some signals with some of the previous uh, slides that maybe it was a little bit lower, not so much with GP, but with Soft Bell, for instance. Anyways, I'm going to skip through, just in the interest of time. So we get to, like, her talk. Her talk is awesome, and it's, like, about <laughs> opioid users. And many of you are thinking, like, that is so much more relevant than what this guy's talking about. So, All right, so we will... Um, uh, kind of remember about different um, uh, drug drug interactions this is soft box, a healthy volunteer study and just looking at one of the more commonly used fixed dose recommendation um, regimens for HIV and that um, you know there were some higher COVID levels in this but um, anyways, in the end what you'll do is call your pharmacists, many of whom are in this room and help sort these out uh, and this adds sort of soft box and what's sort of compatible with that. There is this resistance primer if you want a little bit more learning than this really rapid talk that I just gave that can go over some of these principles, but I hope I've given you a flavor of at least how we think about resistance. It's really fun to look at, and we debate over the significance of Q30R and sort of these things <laughs> in, in a lot of detail, but in the end, from your perspective, I'm thinking kind of, it's easy. You go to the website and you decide things based on what's available to you, like what's on the formula. <laughs> um, OK, so that the recommendations of when you test are actually very few. They include that one regimen with the elbizir which we're glossing over a lot today, because it's not usually number one on formularies. At baseline, you do do that testing. Uh, can be considered for certain patients, but it depends on what you're going to be retreating with, if you look at these details. <laughs> so again, if you have um, access the soft bell box here, it says RAS testing is not recommended because, again, it doesn't really change your act, your um, management. And similar for GP. So if you have access. Now, if you don't have access and you're constructing one of those kitchen sink regimens, maybe it's kind of nice to know what you're dealing with. I already kind of reviewed this. Um, I will point out a couple of uh, additional points. Is there some issue with transmission risk? And will that affect things in the future? This long-lasting NS5A resistance mutation, again, We don't test for that at baseline. It is present at baseline. Could it emerge as an issue? Um, We don't really know the answer to that question at this time. I think we already reviewed these other concepts. The most important thing is, though, what they were exposed to. And um, it's not futile. You can definitely treat again. I'm curious. Is Maine a one-and-done state? Or you can usually get? Okay, good. There are a lot of states that are one-and-done, and and that's a big problem um, for a lot of reasons. All right. So that's it on retreatment. Kind of went through it pretty quickly in the interest of time, so I want to turn it over to the meat of the day, which is the opioid talk. And uh, I apologize, I will have to skip out, so I will not be present for the last little case bit. Do you have a question for me in general right now? It doesn't have to be about this talk. Yes?
1: Just curious, uh, you mentioned that missing, uh, I don't know what it was, uh, 10 pills out of 86 was not a big deal. Mm -hmm. When does it become a big deal? Great
0: question. So, as you're about to hear, I think, do you show adherence slides from, okay, so uh, there are a couple of gr- uh, great um, studies that have been done in um, higher risk individuals, uh, people who inject drugs, um, who were actively using during treatment. And then if you look at their drug dosing diaries in these trials, there are interruptions seven days, eight days at a time, and yet they often still achieve um, SVR. So that. I think the main point is if they're able to get most of these 84 doses in without sort of greater than a week-long interruption, they seem okay. But there's not a lot of data to guide us, I would say, because if you look at clinical trials, their adherence is great. But these are just select people in these trials. They're not, they're, you'll see the adherence is much better than what you might think. In real-life practice, this happens a lot. They end up in jail. They end up in a rehab facility. They forgot their meds at home. They don't call. One thing I'm trying to implement in my practice, and I just started, is um, pe- handing them a letter that if they can hold that, um, maybe they can um, present it to wherever they are. It might be best to send in PDF form if they have an email, if they have a smartphone, because then because nobody carries around a piece of paper anymore. But the point is, like, that would tell, like, call us if they're in some place that, that treatment may be interrupted. These are little things that at least I'm trying to integrate into practice. So it's a great question, though, because it happens a lot. What
1: I usually do, if it feels like it was a, l- a
0: long time, <laughs> um, I'll have them come in, check a viral load, and decide based on that whether to finish out. And then it also depends how much they have left, right? Yeah.
1: And then make but the decision to extend treatment, perhaps? Per-
0: perhaps. if it, Well, so if the viral load's negative when they come in, then I probably wouldn't yeah. extend yes. anything, if, right? If, if it it's, pop up, if it's been four weeks and it's high, I might worry they have resistance I might start over with. Hmm. A yeah. salvage regimen. Okay. So, you know, I think it's a little bit case by case. I don't think there's a good answer. Yeah, two week interruption is not great. I don't mind. So, yes. You have a I problem with uh, our prison system. Yeah, you can. Can. I was
1: going <laughs> to weigh in on this one because uh, if a patient is cirrhotic or less forgiving, Yeah. so patients that you're already worried about in terms of, of this issue, where are they in the treatment? Are they early? Are they late? Did they miss? one dose every week or did they miss six doses in a row? And then look at the half life of the drug. So so in terms of uh, the half lives and the forgiveness we might call it that way, like probably sofosphere based regimens are a little more forgiving of this doses and uh, and less chance to see resistance emergence because they have a higher barrier to resistance as you just heard. So uh, it's a tough judgment call, but uh, we have patients who have gotten out seven weeks and have made a decision actually that if they've missed five, six days to stop and just wait to see what happens, not to restart. That's very different than someone that's been on
0: treatment Weeks. Absolutely. Yeah. Here's the other mind blowing thing. I think all of us have like a patient or two who only got three weeks and something happened and they got interrupted, and guess what? They're cured. Yeah. And you're right. like, what happened there? Well, basically, they probably had a lot of good characteristics and were likely one of these hyper responders or something that cleared up their liver. They're not going to be Ken's erotic patients.
1: We overtreat we a lot of people. Well,
0: right. We are probably overtreating. <coughs> that being said, individualizing to figure out who those patients are may be difficult. And yeah. so in eight weeks is short enough, especially with you if your duration is an issue, um, we have options that will work. And but I, you've had a patient who's done this, right? Gets three weeks and some other period. Maybe not three, but yeah, I've had one. Right. That's the lowest. I think. All right. Well, I've had a great time with y'all. Um, Let's give them a round. I, I, no, <laughs> I, I, my email will be available again. My slides from the first talk will be fixed. And feel free to uh, contact me anytime. Uh, have a safe drive back to Boston. <laughs>